Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. We're going to turn in our Bibles, first of all, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And as we've been looking at matters having to do with Bible prophecy, um, we've, we've looked at several passages dealing with this kind of this gap in the fulfillment of prophecy that we live in called the dispensation of the grace of God. And uh, we saw last time how in Romans 11, it talked about how God in the future would resume his dealings with the nation of Israel. And so now in the, in the remainder of the messages here, as we get kind of an overview of some of these prophetic things, we're going to be looking ahead past the dispensation of grace, past the end of, uh, of this dispensation, to the things that are going to take place on the earth after the close of the dispensation of grace. And so in 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 18, John says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you, because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son." And, and uh, verse 23 says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth, acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And you see in, in that first verse of, of this passage, it talks about Antichrist. And John says that as they had heard that Antichrist would come, he said, even now are there many Antichrists. And John is not not, uh, denying, some people take this passage and say that that there is no no man called the Antichrist to come, but John isn't denying that. He says, you've heard that there is a, a man called the Antichrist that's going to come, but he says in the same way, there's, there's many antichrists. Okay, even now there are many antichrists and there is a spirit of antichrist. Um, you see in verse 22, it says, he is antichrist that denieth the father and the son. And today we're going to talk about that, that individual who appears in many places in Bible prophecy that is known as the antichrist. 
And, and so while John is saying, you know, there are many, many people that are antichrists, there is still that antichrist that is to come. And uh, you see how John refers to, now John's writing this to believers in the first century, and he says it is the last time. And you know that, that really, as far as Bible prophecy goes, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, they, they were entering the last time. Now, the dispensation of grace has been inserted in so that there's been this delay and this extension. But in, in a sense, you could say that all of the dispensation of grace has been the last time or the last days. All right. And uh, when people talk about is it, you know, is today the last days? Yes, it is the last days, but it was also the last days a thousand years ago. And if, you know, if the Lord doesn't return a thousand years from now, it'll be the last days. Okay, and and so the last days, people use that term uh, not necessarily in the biblical prophetic sense, but they use it to mean, are you know, are we close to the to the rapture? Are we close to the second coming of Christ? And that's not something that you have the capacity to know because God hasn't put it in His Word. God has has uh, you know kept some things secret, but but you see that John talks about this antichrist that would come. And, and these, these antichrists, these other antichrists that he talks about, he says they went out from us. They, were, they were, had been there with the, the believers at one point, but they had gone out and were teaching uh, heretical things. John's indication is not that they had fallen away from belief in Christ, but that they had never really been believers in the first place. And he's, you know, he... he uh, says that they went out, that it would be made manifest, that they were not of us. Now, um, one of the passages that we looked at previously, and you can go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and as we go to these passages, you don't need to hold the previous passage, because we're not going to come back, we're not going to come back here to 1 John. Um, Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and and we looked at this passage several weeks ago, but we'll just... um, uh, Look at it again here. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse, um, starting in verse 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The same man that John calls the Antichrist. Paul here calls the man of sin. Uh, If you could could think of just the personification of sin, that's who this man is. He's the man of sin. He calls him the son of perdition. And perdition means destruction. Okay? And that's, that's some of the terminology he uses to describe that same man. He says of that man in verse 4, that he opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And, and uh, he goes on, if you, if you come down to verse 8, uh, maybe verse 7. Verse 7 says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth, or, or withholds, 
uh, will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so you see throughout that passage, there's an individual that's referred to as the man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked in uh, verse 8. And it it, uh, spells out there what his fate will be, which is that the Lord will consume him with the spirit of his mouth and with the brightness of, destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Uh, you see in verse 9 that his, his coming is after the working of Satan. And so he gets power from Satan himself. And we'll see this in some other passages that we'll look at. And notice he comes with all power and signs and lying wonders. And, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came on the earth, uh, performed all kinds of miracles and, and wonders. Um, the Antichrist is going to do those things as well, but he'll do it by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. And you see that those that believe not the truth, if they didn't believe the truth, they're going to believe this strong delusion in the person of the Antichrist. The term Antichrist, by the way, it, it doesn't... It doesn't so much mean against Christ, although certainly the Antichrist is against the Lord Jesus Christ, but it means instead of Christ. It's um, that, that Greek term, term anti, you know, we often think of it as being against or opposed to something, but it really means instead of Christ. And what the Antichrist is going to do when he comes is he's going to present himself as being the true Christ. He's not going to come and present himself as being satanic. He's not going to come and, and, you know, uh, reveal who he is in reality. But rather, he's going to come and claim that he is Christ. You see, it describes there how that he, as God, in verse 4, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. If you, if you leave 2 Thessalonians and go over to Revelation chapter 13, another description of this same individual. And there's, we're just going to get kind of an overview today. There's many more verses that we could go to. But in Revelation chapter 13, in verse 1, uh, this, is, this is John again writing here in the, in the Revelation. And verse 1 says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, his feet were as the feet of a bear, his mouth as the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, if, you, if we've gone back and read Revelation chapter 12, you would know that the dragon is the devil himself. And you see how it says of this man that the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And so the the devil, Satan himself, is working behind this man to bring him to power and to give him power. 
Verse 3 says, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now, uh, the, you know, you want to pay attention to these uh, things that indicate the, the time factor, right? So here is it describes one of his heads wounded to death. Um, and there's other passages that would talk about that as well. Uh, apparently, about halfway through that tribulation period, that seven-year period of time that the Bible describes in so many prophetic passages, about halfway through that period of time, the, uh, this Antichrist is wounded, and it's with a, a head wound. A dead, in fact, it calls it a deadly wound. But that wound is healed. And it's such a, a wonder on the earth that from that time forward, everybody, it describes the, the people on the earth there, that uh, it says all the world wondered after the beast. They worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Because, at least partially, because of this wonder that is performed as that wound is healed. Um, you, you can imagine, you know, often when a when a leader is either assassinated or, a, or an assassination attempt is made, uh, whether that person was well-liked or not before that, uh, they, they kind of are universally uh, well thought of after that. You think of somebody like John F. Kennedy, um, you know, and, and the assassination on him, even as a political opponent, uh, didn't dare speak ill of the man after that. Now, you can imagine what the situation would have been if, if uh, John F. Kennedy had recovered from that head wound, had recovered from that assassination attempt. Uh, imagine the great amount of power he would have been able to accumulate just because of public opinion on his side. In fact, there were, there were some people, there were some people who believed that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist, and they were waiting for him to rise from the dead on the third day. That would, you know, go back to some of those things we talked about a few weeks ago and how people try and read, uh, you know, read these things into today's events because they don't recognize the dispensation of grace that's been inserted here. But you can imagine how that would happen. Here you have a man who's a a fairly fairly, uh, powerful and, and... popular leader anyway, and then there's this, this uh, you know, however it takes place, this wound um, seems to be probably an assassination attempt. Um, there's other passages that describe it as well, and he comes back from it, and uh, you see it says in verse 5, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. And one of the things that seems to always be mentioned in the passages that talk about this man, the Antichrist, is his mouth. And he is a, a, a diplomat. He's a, somebody who is able to, to speak persuasively. And you see, there was given unto him in verse 5 a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's three and a half years. That's the, the uh, last half of that tribulation period. 
And he opened his mouth, verse 6, in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And this, this man, the Antichrist, he uh, takes this power not just over a small kingdom, but really over all of the world. Uh, it it uh, describes there how he speaks, it says that uh, he blasphemes the name of God and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And remember that in this time that's being described here in the book of Revelation, there are going to be, there's going to be a, 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 very, a very visible battle that's taking place. And what the Antichrist succeeds in doing is to convince the world that that guy up there in heaven is the enemy. He's the bad guy, and the Antichrist and the one he gets his power from are the good guys. And he gets the world to rally around him. In fact, the, the, the battle of Armageddon, when you read about the battle of Armageddon towards the end of the book of Revelation, those armies that gather there at Jerusalem are not gathered there to fight against one another. They're not gathered there to, to you know, squabble about, about different things between nations. They're gathered there in unity to fight against the God of heaven, fight against the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and of course, you can read about how when Christ actually appears, how futile their efforts are. But they're not there to fight one another. They're there to fight against Christ. There are points during this period of time where heaven itself is opened and people are able to see into heaven and, and see this, you know, this battle that's taking place. And the Antichrist convinces the vast majority of the world to league with him and decide with him in this battle. Now, we're going to spend most of the rest of our time back in the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel gives a, a lot of detailed information about the rise of this individual that we're talking about this morning, this Antichrist, this man of sin. He's called here in Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north. And in Daniel, in Daniel 11, now we aren't going to look at the whole chapter, but maybe just start in the, in the very beginning. Uh, verse 1 says, Also I in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. That's Daniel 11.1. 1. Now, if you remember in a previous lesson, we looked at that vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the image with the head of gold and the, the chest and the arms of brass and the belly and thighs of silver, the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And we saw how that was a, a, a vision of the progression of world empires that would arise on the earth. If you remember, the head of gold was Babylon and the next kingdom that was going to come after Babylon was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, those two arms of, of uh, silver. And the, the Medes and the Persians, notice Daniel places the writing here of Daniel chapter 11 in the first year of Darius the Mede. 
Uh, Daniel had a prominent position in that kingdom of, ba- of Babylon, but he also continued then into the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians and had a prominent position there in that kingdom as well, which is kind of a strange thing. Normally, when you come in and conquer another power, you kick out all of their people. You don't leave, leave a lot of their people in power. But Daniel was given favor with first the Babylonians and then with the Medes and the Persians to where he had very high positions, in fact, almost the highest position in both of those kingdoms. And so here in Daniel 11, you've, you've progressed. Babylon is gone. Now you're into the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel is there in the, in the first year of Darius the Mede. Uh, verse 2, it says, Now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Now, what Daniel's describing here are events that once again, you can you can see fulfilled perfectly in history. So Daniel here talks about the progression of kings within that Persian empire that are going to arise. He talks about uh, that fourth king and how he's going to stir up, uh, stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And Grecia is going to be that next empire that is going to defeat the, the uh, Medo-Persian empire and uh, become that, the next in the progression. He talks there about a mighty king that will stand up and that will rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when you, when you take this and try and match it up with events in history, what you find is that he's talking there about uh, a man named Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great was the son of Philip of Macedon. Now, he starts over there in Macedon. He winds up extending all the way over into India. And he did all of that. I, I believe Alexander the Great died at about 28 years of age. And uh, just, just, you know, uh, had this, this kingdom that extended to farther than any of the kingdoms before had extended. And Alexander the Great is that mighty king that's described there in that passage. Um, and, and Greece, Alexander the Great, begins that Greek empire that succeeds the Medo-Persian empire. But it says that, that uh, his kingdom shall be broken. And it says it will be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity. When Alexander the Great died, um, he, he didn't have an heir. He didn't have an heir. He, his wife was pregnant but because the child hadn't been born yet when he died, uh, the child wasn't considered to be the heir. Um, there, you know, of course, in any kind of situation like that, people start trying to gain enough power to, to kind of take over things. But what wound up happening with the kingdom of, of uh, Alexander the Great, the kingdom wound up being divided into four parts. You had down in Egypt what is the, the Ptolemaic 
Egypt, the Ptolemaic Empire. Uh, over, over here to the east, you have the Seleucid Empire. Macedon became a, a separate kingdom. And then in Asia Minor, you had what, what was called the Kingdom of Pergamon. Now, it, as it says here in the passage, that his kingdom is going to be broken and it's going to be divided toward the four winds of heaven. And so you have Egypt, you have that, that uh, Ptolemaic Egypt in the south, you have the Seleucid Empire to the east, you have Macedon to the west, and you have the, the uh, Pergamon kingdom to the north. That Pergamon kingdom, by the way, uh, the, the city of Pergamum is mentioned in the book of Revelation in those letters to the, the seven churches. One of the letters is addressed to the angel of the church at Pergamum, or Pergamos. And Pergamos, it says in that letter that that's where Satan's seat is. Okay, well, if you, if you consider the Seleucid Empire to be the east, you know, it says it's going to be broken to the four winds of heaven. The Seleucid Empire to the east, uh, Ptolemy's Egypt in the south, Macedon in the west, and that Pergamon kingdom would be the north. Okay, and the rest of the passage now in Daniel chapter 11, it, it's not going to talk so much about the eastern part of that kingdom or the western part of that kingdom, but it's going to refer repeatedly to the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, uh, those things early in the chapter of Daniel are clearly historical from where we are today. They were still future in Daniel's day, you realize. They were prophetic in Daniel's day. But from where we're at in the timeline today, those things were in, are in the past. And, you know, as you read various commentaries on Daniel 11, uh, you see the, almost all the commentaries agree that in the beginning part of Daniel 11, that's historical from where we're at today. When you start getting into the middle of Daniel 11, then there's some debate, is it historical, is it, is it yet future? Um, but but uh, if you, we aren't going to read all the verses down, you know, in the beginning part of the chapter, but uh, there does appear to be several places in the passage where it seems to be kind of bridging these large gaps of time. For instance, come down to verse 7. Verse 6 talks about the daughter of the south, okay, which would be the, the daughter of that king of the south. And in verse 7, it says, But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate. Well, when it says out of a branch of her roots, it's talking about some, some descendant down the line. There's going to be this person that rises up. So there seems to be a gap in time there. Uh, and, and that very well could be a long gap in time. It could be that some of these things, like from verse 7 down, uh, could be yet future to where we are today. Again, you know, different, different uh, people will argue about whether it's in the past or in the future. But when you get down to verse 21, and verse 21 to the end of the chapter is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. When you get down to verse 21, um, even here there's some debate about whether this is historical or whether it's yet future. In fact, if you have a Schofield reference Bible, uh, Schofield has a heading there above verse 21 that says the little horn of Daniel 8, and it, it identifies that as a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I'll, I'll mention him in a little bit here. But uh, 
So Schofield says that from verse 21 down to verse 35 is all historical from where we're at today. But we're going to see that from verse 21 down to the end of the chapter, there, there's no change in context. There's one individual that begins to be described in verse 21 that is described all the way down through. And we'll see that just with the few number of verses we looked at already about the Antichrist, that this is that same individual. In, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, it says, In his estate... And it's referring to the king of the north. And when it says in his estate, it's that, that word estate means his station or his position. And it's talking about a, a, a king that will rise into that position of the king of the north. It says, in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Realize that the kingdom that the Antichrist is going to receive, he's not going to get it by raising a big big army and conquering. Okay, there's going to come a point, we'll see in this passage, where he conquers other nations. But where he originally comes to power is not through military might. It's If anything, it's through diplomacy. It refers to it here as flatteries. He's going to obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.